have props tonight. I have a prop. Uh, this is a photo album that I think I co-made. I don't know if my mom, I don't know how this thing started. Um, it dates back, I believe, to when I left home from high school to come to A&M. Um, it's old, it's falling apart, uh, and it's dated as to when it was produced. It's a bright blue, as you can see from your seat. What you might not be able to see is the lovely alligator skin texture on the photo album, because who doesn't want to wrap all of their life's memories in blue alligator skin? Um, but it's that kind of photo album that has these pages. Oh, it's upside down. You can't even tell where the front is. Um, and you glue, you know, I'm sure it's extremely toxic. Um, and you're not supposed to use, do this to your photos, but they're kind of glued onto the pages and it has the plastic that peels back, right? So this is, my, this is the only one of these I own. We have boxes and boxes of photos, which uh, we discover again each time we move. But we keep these things, we keep these photo albums um, because they contain stories, they contain pictures that matter to us, right? You can, if, I, if I held up pictures from here, you wouldn't be able to see them. So, uh, lucky for you, I scanned a few of these in so you can see what's inside this photo album. This is me on, I think, my first day of first grade at Smith Elementary in the Ailey School District in Houston, which we thankfully left soon after that. Nice Love You Blue uh, bumper sticker on my folder there. Um, the prized Dukes of Hazard t-shirt, probably my seventh or eighth birthday. Um, this is the, literally, this is the peak of my athletic career. I got fourth place in the district meet in 600 meters, and that's like 20 meters before the end. That's it. And the ribbon for fourth place is pink. Um, but the real highlight in, in uh, this particular collection of photos is me with long hair in college. <clears throat> the only photo I have of me with long hair, and I'm wearing a tie for some reason, so we try to crop that out. But we keep these things, and I keep this, not just for the silly photos, but because there are things that are meaningful, right? This is me as a little boy in a Batman t-shirt with my uncle and aunt and my great-grandparents. And she lived into her 90s. He lived to be about three months shy of 105. Um, he was born in 1889, and he died when I was an adult in college at A&M. It's a significant part of my history of my life. Um, and that's me and my middle brother, Will, on the left, my cousin, Matt, at my Aunt Gina's house, who passed away a few years ago. There are meaningful things in these albums as well, which is part of the reason that we keep them. We keep them because we want to remember and we want to retell our stories, not just for fun, but because our identity is rooted in these memories, in these stories, in these people that we collect, that we keep images of. Um, there are stories in here of us. There are stories in here of our people. And we don't just keep them in albums anymore. Of course, we keep them in all kinds of different ways. But most of us keep them the ones that really matter on our walls, right? Not just albums that you pull out every time you move or you stumble across a box, but so that you have these images on your walls that remind you who you are, what your story is, who your people are, and what matters, and I want us to think tonight in a certain sense about the Bible in this way. We're going to talk about the Bible for the next two weeks. Lots of different ways to approach talking about the Bible. Um, next week, Carolyn is going to share with us some, some practical uh, teaching on 
studying and memorizing scripture as a spiritual discipline, but before we went down that road, it felt important to me to talk about the Bible a little bit, not just to say, here's how you can do it, but to be sure that we cared to do it. (laughs) And I can't make you care, and I can't always make myself care, but I want to make an appeal tonight that this really matters, and that when we start talking about being in the scripture as a matter, matter of discipline, that it really, really matters, that it's important. Um, and I've, I've wrestled with how to approach this one shot at making that appeal for weeks, and especially this week, all the way up to about two hours ago, I was really fighting through the best way to do this. I've taught on the scriptures specifically for several weeks. Back in 2009, I went back and looked at those sermons, um, and there's some really good stuff there. It's, I don't always feel that way when I go back and look at sermons from nine years ago. Um, but it was more focused sort of on a doctrine of the scriptures. And that matters, and that's important, but that's not what I'm going to do tonight. I can point you to some resources for that if uh, you're really concerned about that. Um, but here's what I want to do tonight. I just typed it. It was in my notes, and I just decided to type it up and put it on the screen. I want to make this case tonight, that the Bible is essential to you knowing who you are and why you exist, the whole Bible. For us to be who we were created to be individually and as a people, we have to continue to root ourselves in the scriptures. And the scriptures do two things. They remind us of who God is based on his history and who we are based on the history of our people, because that's what the scriptures are. They're a history of God and a history of our people but they also empower us to be who we were created to be as God's people now and in the days to come. And I think we lose all of that if we become untethered from the scriptures. And we're just hanging on to little threads, little fragments of Christianity if we become disconnected in a consistent way from the scriptures. So I want us to leave here tonight more convinced of our need to embrace the scriptures and not just occasionally, not just when you show up here and somebody's teaching from them, not just in a piecemeal way when you really need something so you get a concordance and find out where does the Bible talk about this, but to take the scriptures in completely, the whole thing, and to take them in consistently. And like I said, there's a lot of different ways to make that case. I could stand up and argue for it, and I'll say a few things in the middle um, about, I think, how we can, can maybe reorient that way. But, but it felt like the most helpful thing I can do tonight is to show you that this is true of the Scriptures rather than just trying to tell you that it's true. Um, so I want to spend most of my time showing you something from the Scriptures, uh, showing you how much goodness and how much richness is available to us by looking at Two specific examples, if we have time, I'm going to do one for sure, and if there's time, I'd really like to do a second one that's a little shorter. Um, Two specific examples that show us who God is and that, that show us that that thread runs through the scriptures, that it's not just a story that we can learn something about God from that one story, but that the scriptures are consistently and in these very interesting and dynamic ways revealing the character of God and showing us who he is and showing us who we are over the course of centuries and multiple different passages, okay? So here's the first thing I'm going to do. This is the one long passage I'm going to read you tonight. Um, And the last part of it I'll have on the screen. And I'm just going to read to you. I know not everybody loves it when when you just get read to, but uh, embrace your inner 
elementary school student and listen as I read to you from Exodus 16, and then I'll have the last part of it, like I said, on the screen. So Exodus 16, we're told this, then the entire community of Israel departed from Elam and entered the desert of Sin, which is located between Elam and Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from Egypt. This is as God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt and they head into the wilderness. As soon as they got to the desert of Sin, the entire community of Israelites complained to Moses and Aaron who were leading them. The Israelites said, it would have been better if we had died by the hand of the eternal in Egypt. At least we had plenty to eat and drink, for our pots were stuffed with meat, and we had as much bread as we wanted. But now you've brought the entire community out to the desert to starve us to death. This is what happens when people become panicked and hopeless, right? They say things like, I would have rather been, had a full belly and God just strike me dead than be out here and feel like we're about to starve to death. So the eternal one says to Moses, look, I will cause bread to rain down from heaven for you and the people will go out and gather a helping of it each day. I will test them to see if they are willing to live by my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather the usual amount, but when they go to prepare it, it will end up being twice what they usually gather. The discipline of Sabbath enters into the story here. So Moses and Aaron say to the Israelites, when evening falls, you will know that the eternal has led you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, your eyes will see his glory because he takes your complaints against us as complaints against him. Who are we that you direct your complaints to us? We're just doing what God told us to do and leading you out. But God heard you complaining about not having food. And then Moses continues and says this, this will take place when the eternal one provides you with meat in the evening and plenty of bread in the morning because he hears all your grumbling and complaining against him. Why do you complain against us? Your complaints are not against us, but against him. Then Moses says to Aaron, tell the entire community of Israelites, draw near to the eternal, he's heard your complaints. While Aaron was speaking to the entire community of the Israelites, they all looked out toward the desert and the radiant glory of the eternal could be seen in the cloud. The eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Rest assured, I have heard the constant complaining, I love the language here, of the Israelites. Tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have enough bread to satisfy your gnawing hunger. Then you will know that I am the eternal, your God. That evening, quail flew in and covered the camp. And when the morning arrived, what seemed to be ordinary dew was all around the camp, but when the dew evaporated, it left behind a thin, mysterious, flaky substance that looked like frost on top of the dry desert ground. The people of Israel went out to examine it. They had never seen anything quite like it, and they said to one another, what is it? The people didn't have a clue what this strange substance was. Moses said, it is the bread which the eternal has given you to eat. Here are his instructions. Gather only as much of it as you should eat by yourself. Pick up two quarts of bread for each person who lives in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told, sort of. Some people gathered a lot, others gathered less. When they used a two-quart jar to measure it, the one who had gathered a lot didn't have more than he needed. The one who had gathered less had just what he needed. Miraculously, each person... And each family, regardless of how much they gathered, had exactly what they needed. So Moses, continuing God's instruction, said, Don't try to keep any of it until the morning. Either eat it all or throw it away. 
But some people ignored Moses and tried to keep some of it until the next morning. Overnight, it became wormy and started to have a dreadful smell. Moses became furious with them because they had disobeyed God's instructions. Every morning, the people went out and gathered it. Each family took only what it needed. By the time the sun became hot, it had melted away. On the sixth day, the people went out and gathered, but they came back with twice as much as usual, four quarts per person. All the leaders of the community thought they needed to tell Moses what had happened. So Moses said to the leaders, listen to what the eternal commanded. Tomorrow, the seventh day, is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath dedicated to him. Bake or boil whatever you need for today's meals. Whatever is left over, keep it to eat tomorrow. It won't spoil. So the people stored some of it until the next morning, just as Moses had instructed. None of it spoiled, nor did it have any worms. Moses said, eat what is left over today, because today is a Sabbath to the eternal, a day of rest. You will not find any of it in the field today. You are to gather it for six days, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, none of it will be on the ground. When the seventh day arrived, some of the people ignored Moses and went out to gather it anyway, but there was none to gather. The Eternal One said to Moses, how much longer are you going to disobey my commands and instructions? Look, I have given you the Sabbath as a day of rest. That is why I give you an extra portion of food on the sixth day. Everyone should stay where they are and not go out to work on the seventh day. So the people did as God directed and rested on the seventh day. The community of Israel decided to name the mysterious substance manna, which means, what is it? Did you know that? It was white like a coriander seed, and it tasted sweet like honey wafers. And then this is how the story ends. Moses says, this is the instruction of the eternal. Preserve two quarts of the manna so that the future generations can see the bread I provided for you in the desert when I led you out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, you're going to keep this like a photo album so that your future generations can see that I fed you when you thought you were going to starve to death. And then Moses said to Aaron, go, find a jar, fill it with two quarts of manna, put it in a special place before the eternal to preserve it for future generations to see. Aaron did as the eternal commanded. He stored the jar before the covenant to keep it safe. For 40 years, the Israelites were sustained by the manna God supplied. They ate it until they arrived at the borderlands of Canaan, the edge of the land they would one day inhabit. This is one of the most told and retold stories of God's people, and it's specifically treasured by Israel over the centuries. It is an anchor story of the Jewish faith and truly of our faith, and it's remembered and it's retold because that remembering, that retelling is one of the essential ways that God's people over the centuries have meditated on who God is. This is a revelation of who God is. And they do that, they remember that, they meditate on that so that by faith, not just to look backwards, but so that by faith, they can imagine the ways that he will be with them and good to them in the present and the future. That's the point of the remembering and the retelling of a story like this. So at this point in history, God's, when we get this story, God's people, like I said, have been led out of slavery um, in Egypt, and they're on their way to a rich land of freedom and provision that God has promised them. They know that. They know that they're headed for the promised land, and God has said, you're going to have everything you could want and more. But right now, 
They're starving in the wilderness, which is not what some of them counted on. And the season of wilderness living is both harder and it's longer than they imagined it would be. And then this story unfolds. And this is part of the case for knowing and seeing the whole Bible. Because this reality of wilderness on the way to something else, on, to, on the way to the fulfilling of God's promises, is a regular and central image of the Bible. And seeing how it unfolds is the way. It is how you and I, in our time and place in history, this is the way we will know where God is and who we are as we encounter wilderness ourselves. Otherwise, our reality, that wilderness that we're in, in the moment, becomes our central reality. What we see is what we believe. We rehearse and we retell and we know what's in the scriptures, stories like this, so that we have some orientation about who God is and where God is and who we are when we're in the wilderness ourselves. The wilderness is where a lot of people check out on faith. It just is because we often have trouble reconciling a good, the idea of a good and present God with the reality of our struggles, of our suffering, of our wilderness. And it's too bad that we check out having trouble reconciling that because God gave us a whole Bible that reconciles the good and the present God with the reality of wilderness. An enormous chunk of the scriptures are about reconciling those things. So here in Exodus 16, we get the beginning of that. This is kind of where that reconciliation starts. We have God's people in a place where death seems more certain than their next meal. And then comes the wonder of a God who joins his people in the wilderness, a God who is present with them. In the wilderness, he's not just waiting ahead in the promised land. He's with them in the wilderness and who feeds them with food they can't provide for themselves and food they can't expect from their circumstances. This is the beginning of our understanding of who God is and where he is when we're in the wilderness. And one of the really fantastic themes of this story, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it today, um, is this, this reality that God is teaching them to trust them what, for what they need one day at a time right? To not worry about what tomorrow brings. I might give you enough food that you can gather it up and save it for tomorrow, but, but then you're accumulating to make sure you'll be okay tomorrow. And I'm telling you, I'm in tomorrow too. I'm present there. I'm going to feed you tomorrow. Will you trust me with that? And that's a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. Jesus says it emphatically down the road. He reiterates that you shouldn't be storing up and accumulating so that you will be okay tomorrow. And we, listen, we largely treat that as metaphor when Jesus says that. And it's kind of strange that we do that because those words for him are rooted in such a literal experience of people destroying extra food so they won't accumulate for themselves because they believe that God will take care of them tomorrow and I don't need to accumulate for tomorrow. 
And this story in Exodus shapes this group of God's people. It produces in them an imagination and a faith to believe that the bread in the wilderness is the bread of heaven, that this is God himself providing for us. And, and this theme starts here in Exodus 16, but you're about to see it runs throughout Scripture, and it's helpful for us to see it show up again. It produces things like Psalm 46, where the psalmist declares that God is a refuge and strength, that he is a very present help in a time of trouble. That's not just poetry. It's not just wishful thinking. It's rooted in, remember how God fed his people in the wilderness? He's a very present help in trouble. And that faith that that's who God is shapes subsequent generations. It shaped that generation of God's people, but it shapes other generations of God's people, including us, if we will know and will root ourselves in these biblical truths and revelations. So look at a couple of other passages where this theme continues in the scriptures. Isaiah 55 says this, if you are thirsty, come here, come, there's water for all. Whoever is poor and penniless can still come and buy the food I sell. There's no cost. Here, have some food, hearty and delicious, and beverages, pure and good. I don't understand why you spend your money for things that don't nourish or work so hard for what leaves you empty. Attend to me and eat what is good. Enjoy the richest, most delectable of things. Listen closely and come even closer. My words will give life, for I will make a covenant with you that cannot be broken, a promise of my enduring presence and support like I gave to David. So first of all, uh, this psalm, this word from Isaiah references David. I don't have time to take you through all the ways that this theme pops up in the scripture, so we know there's one that we're not talking about, right? But this, these words from Isaiah are centuries later. This is around 6th century BC when Israel is again in a state of wilderness. They're in exile. They're starved for food and hope. And we get this poem. And the faith and the imagination of these words are rooted in Exodus 16. Here, another believer, somebody just like you and me, has been rooted in the truth of that Exodus story. I promise you, Isaiah was brought up hearing and rehearing the story of the Exodus and God providing, providing manna and feeding everybody day in and day out. And rooted in that story and hearing from the Lord, he has taken that manna story and offered a poem, a song that will remind God's people who God is and that will give them a chance to see God and his provision and not the wilderness as their primary truth and reality. He's able to do this because he's rooted in what God did before. And he's rooted in what God did before because the scriptures have told him about it and he's grown up hearing about it and, and reading about it. And so now for his time and place, he says, listen to what God says. God is going to take care of you. He is your truth not your circumstances. And then along comes Jesus, and this happens. In Mark chapter six, now the 12 returned from their travels and told them that they, what they had done, whom they had seen, and how they had spread the news of God's kingdom. So Jesus says to the disciples, let's go out into the wilderness for a while and rest ourselves. The crowds gathered as always, and Jesus and the 12 couldn't eat because so many people came and went. They could get no, place, no peace until they boarded a boat and sailed toward a deserted place. But the people would not be put off so easily. 
Those along the shore who recognized Jesus followed along the coast. People pushed out of all the cities and gathered ahead of him. So that when Jesus came ashore and saw this crowd of people waiting for him in a place that should have been relatively deserted, he was moved with compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. As the day passed, at last the disciples came to Jesus. And this is what they said. It's getting late and there's nothing around for miles. Send these people to the surrounding villages so they can buy something to eat. And Jesus says, why don't you give them something to eat? The disciples, looking at him, said, what? It would cost a fortune to buy bread for these people. And Jesus says, does anyone have any bread? Go and see. And the disciples, returning from the crowd, said this, there are five pieces of flat bread and two fish, if that makes any difference. And Jesus said, listen, tell them to gather in smaller groups and sit on the green patch of grass. And so the disciples gathered the people in groups of 100 or 50, and they sat down. Jesus took the five pieces of flat bread and the two fish, looked up to heaven, thanked God for the food, and broke it. He gave the pieces to the disciples to distribute. And all of the people ate until no one was hungry. Then they gathered 12 baskets full of leftovers. That day, 5,000 ate their fill of the bread when Jesus fed the hungry crowd. If you jump ahead a couple of chapters um, in Mark 8, this happens again. It's 4,000 instead of 5,000 in Mark 8. Um, But here's Jesus feeding hungry people out in the middle of nowhere. And you should be certain that when he does this, that the disciples and God's people saw what he was doing through the lens of Exodus 16. We don't necessarily, because we're not steeped in those stories in the same way. I promise you, they saw what was happening through that lens. This was a declaration. This wasn't just him feeding people. This wasn't just a miracle. This was a declaration that Jesus is from and one with the God of the Exodus. Same God, present here in Jesus. The God who provided manna for the hungry people who have gone into the wilderness wilderness, trying to follow God's ways, he's here doing it again. That's what happens in this moment. He's not, it's not just a magic trick, it's not just a miracle. Jesus is seen as God's presence in the wilderness feeding hungry people. And That means, if you really dig into it, that the gospel itself is rooted in the Exodus story. It is Jesus who is God's presence with us and salvation for us in our hunger for truth and for actual food. The gospel tells us that God is with us in the wilderness, that he will take care of our needs that we can't meet ourselves. And that's rooted in that first story that we read from Exodus. And we'll circle back to this in this second group that we'll get through in just a minute. But what we do here in communion every week, what we're going to do in just a few minutes, is also rooted in the Exodus story. We remember and we acknowledge the one who upheld his covenant, the God who made a covenant with his people and upheld it by feeding them in the Exodus wilderness, by feeding these 9,000 people who wandered around following Jesus desperate for some kind of truth and encounter with God. And by feeding us when we take the bread and the juice, the wine in this place. But you only see and know that it's all connected to that history if you're in the Bible. 
You only understand the place that we occupy in God's story if you're looking at the whole story. And there's a lot I'd like to say here about the ways that I think we tend to approach the the Bible that come up short. And just two things real quick. Um, I think one thing we tend to do is we tend to sort of go do our own thing and stay busy and not spend a lot of time with the scriptures. Um, And then when we've come to the end of ourselves, when we're desperate, um, we go to the scriptures. And that just means that we haven't treated it as our starting place, as a primary source of our identity or our way of living, but we treat it more like a tornado shelter. Bible ain't a tornado shelter. But that's what we tend to do. Um, We tend to run to it when we finally realize, I'm not in control, what am I gonna do? That's one thing. Another thing that a lot of us tend to do is we treat it as a book of information that uh, we're supposed to master. So we apply techniques of study, which are good. We're gonna talk about some of them next week. Um, But we apply those techniques of study so that we can fully understand the information contained in the Bible and then step confidently into our lives with a sense of control. The Bible does not exist for you to master it so you can suddenly feel in control of your life. That's a backwards way of seeing the scriptures, and I'm just going to tell you, it's what the last hundred or so years of a lot of evangelical Christianity has done to the Bible. It's not what it's for. So, like I said, I don't want to preach so much tonight as let the scriptures kind of make this case for themselves um, that instead of those two approaches or whatever other approaches that come up short that we grab onto, I want to appeal to us to have eyes to see the value of rooting ourselves in the whole thing over and over and over again, to learn to pay attention, to understand these realities that permeate the pages of the scriptures from Genesis to Exodus that show up again and again and tell us what God has who God has always been, who he still is, who he's going to be, so that we can understand where we fit in his story. And that we're not just lost and confused and disoriented and so overwhelmed by our current circumstances that we're just grabbing for whatever we can grab onto when we suddenly realize we're out of control. I want us to read the scriptures again and again to convince ourselves not to settle too easily for another way of life. This is where we're told what God's way of life in the midst of wilderness and opposition and all kinds of difficulty looks like. This is where it's found. And if we're not embedded there with it, we're going to settle for something else. We're going to grab on to some other way of living. And I just want to say that um, if we do that... (laughs) If we put the Bible out on the fringes, we're going to have a very limited vision. We're going to live a life that is a very muted version of what we're supposed to live. Um, And so the the preachy thing I want to say is this. It's not too much. It is not too much. And this is true. I don't care if you're 75 in the room. I don't care if you're... 13 in the room, it is not too much to know the Bible. There's not too much important stuff going on in your life for you to take the time. You're not too young to start putting yourself in the scriptures. You're not too old. You're not over it. You haven't heard it all. 
It's not too much to put yourself in the stream of God's story. It is the only way that you're going to catch who God is. Otherwise, you're going to have a very, very fragmented and impoverished version of that. So I want to close with, with a second little, this one's shorter, I promise, run through the scriptures. And this one gives us, I think, the big picture of, and, and, and this is what I think in, in some sense is the big picture of the scriptures. It is a story of God making and fulfilling a covenant with us. And if we can stay connected to that truth, to that story, it changes everything about how we live here and now. And that's true individually and communally. Individuals and churches who, re- who read and who know the Bible cannot deny the power of this God or the faithfulness of this God who has made a covenant with his people. And we also understand that we're part of that covenant. We can't run from the ways that that covenant shapes our lives and the mission of our lives. So I I want you to see how that idea of covenant, God's faithfulness to us and our part in that story unfolds in the scripture, starting in Genesis 9, which tells us this, but God was not finished. He had more to say both to Noah and his sons. The eternal one said, look, for I am now going to make a pact, a special covenant with you and all your descendants. This covenant also extends to every living creature in the world, the birds, the domesticated animals, and every wild animal on the earth, as many as emerged with you from the ark. As part of this covenant, I promise you I will never again wipe out all living flesh by means of flooding waters. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Hey, catch this. Noah's ark is not just a theme for for the walls of the nursery. This is a story of the roots of God's covenant with us. We're part of this story. As a sign of this perpetual covenant, I now make between me and you and all living creatures along along with you, as well as with future generations, I will hang a rainbow among the clouds. It will serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And from now on, whenever a cloud rises over the earth and a rainbow appears in the sky, I will remember my covenant, my promise I have made between me and you and all living creatures. No waters will ever again turn into a flood powerful enough to destroy all living creatures. When that rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember this eternal covenant I have made with all living creatures. Look for the rainbow and remember my promise. With it, I sign the covenant I have made between me and all the living creatures residing on the earth. So God makes this covenant with his people from the start. We've already seen some of the ways that he fulfills it in these other passages, but look at a couple of other ways the Bible echoes this theme, this covenant, this promise. Not just in in doctrine, here's what's true about God, though that exists in the Bible, not just in stories and narratives, but in prophecy and poetry, which is one of the beautiful things about the scriptures. Hosea 2 reads this way, and I swear when that day comes, she'll call me my husband and never address me again as my master as she did those other gods. She'll never invoke the name of any other master again. Everyone will forget when that day comes, this is what I'll do for my people. I'll make a covenant for them with the wild animals and flying birds and crawling insects, and they'll agree never to devour her crops again. 
I'll smash all the bows and swords and weapons that could be used to invade their land, and they'll live in security. And then God says to his reclaimed bride, I'm going to marry you, and this time it'll be forever in righteousness and justice. Our covenant will reflect a loyal love and great mercy. Our marriage will be honest and truthful, and you'll understand who I really am, the eternal one. So this comes in Israel's history around the time that the Assyrians took over everything, and once again, Israel panics and fears that God has abandoned them because their eyes are on their circumstances. And so up steps Hosea, declaring something old, God is going to make this covenant with you, but as old as it is, in their circumstances, something revolutionary about God. He's still the God of the covenant. He sees you. He's with you. Your circumstances are not the end of the story. He will overcome your oppressors, and he pledges again his faithfulness to people. And in this, way, in this particular case, he pledges it in a way that reads like vows in a marriage ceremony. And he says, this is who I am and how I will be faithful to you. And then finally, we come to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, who writes this, I passed on to you the tradition the Lord gave to me. On the same night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread in his hands, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Keep doing this so that you and all who come after will have a vivid reminder of me. After they had finished dinner, he took the cup and in the same way he said, this cup is the new covenant executed in my blood. Keep doing this, and whenever you drink it, you and all who come after will have a vivid reminder of me. Every time you taste this bread and every time you place the cup to, the mouth, to your mouths and drink, you are declaring the Lord's death, which is the ultimate expression of his faithfulness and love until he comes again. Paul reaches back into that centuries-old memory and says, the Eucharist, this act of remembering Jesus in bread, remembering his body, remembering his blood, is part of the making and the keeping of the covenant. Every time we come together and we take communion here, we remember and we enter in again to this covenant that God made to Noah and to his family this covenant that saves us, that heals us, that declares God's presence and God's faithfulness among us and propels us to live a different story. And that's a story of hope and expectation that is rooted in, it's not just an arbitrary story of hope and expectation, it's a story rooted in and defined by the history given to us with truth and with authority by the scriptures. So we're going to do that again today. The servers can go ahead and come forward, and we're going to remember the covenant, and we are going to enter into the covenant. We are going to declare ourselves participants in the covenant. And we can do that because we've been given the scriptures that root us in that story. Let me pray for us, and then come and remember. Father, you are good. You are good to give us these words on pages that are so much more than a book. You are good to give us centuries of truth and covenant 
to give us a story to call our own. And so I pray that we would be people who take hold of that, who say, it's my story. And as you've offered us this access to it, who place ourselves in it, and who decide it's not too much <laughs> to know the story, to know the truth to us in your scriptures. So we come tonight and we enter into communion once again to remember that we are sealed into that covenant by Jesus who gave his body, who gave his life, and who sealed for us a hope and a future. Come and receive.